Uh, here are some modern terms for you. Mansplaining. Mansplaining. If you're a bloke, you may not have heard of it. Uh, ladies, if you haven't heard of it, I'll explain it to you later. Uh, mansplaining. Uh, manspreading. You might have sat next to it on the train. Uh, the term man-child. Emotionally immature, all he wants to do is play video games and drink beer and watch the footy. Man flu. Now I want you to know, ladies, science says it's true. But listen, you've heard all the terms before and they're just not fair, are they? At least for half of us. Uh, Where's the tomato sauce? Right in front of you. You're having a man look. See, we're living in an age where it's tough to be a bloke sometimes and you get sledged for it just for being part of a certain half of humanity, which is only fair maybe if you're part of the other half who have been copying it for generations. But seriously, it has been pointed out that being a man these days is kind of like the equivalent of the days when Irish jokes were a thing. Now it's men who are the butt of humour who just look useless and dumb. Now, if you're a bloke here this morning, step into real life for a minute, step into your life, and maybe things aren't quite that grim, but at least if you're anything like me, at least in our worst moments, we are so easily caught up in selfishness and laziness and cowardice. We want to be comfortable, we want to be looked after, we want to have fun, and we want to avoid confrontation at all costs. Now, the fact is, that's nothing new. Because in this morning's epic story in Judges chapter 4, from one angle at least, the men of Israel come out looking lazy, ordinary and dumb. It is a story about who turns up and who doesn't when the heat's on. And we'll then see that reflected in the song in chapter 5 that's just been read for us. So let's take a look first at the story that unfolds in Judges chapter 4. We're going through another one of those deadly cycles that we've seen the last couple of weeks that make up, in a sense, the background, the structure of the book, those deadly downward spirals in the history of Israel. Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. They rebel, and so Israel pays the price. And then the people of Israel turn back to God. They repent, and God raises up a judge who saves them from their enemies a rescuer, and then they have rest and the pattern starts all over again. So you'll notice, if you can look at Judges chapter 4, verse 1, here it is, another cycle. Judge Ehud dies, verse 1, who we met last week, and no sooner is Ehud laid to rest that the Israelites are straight back to their rebellion. And it says the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sells them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigns in Hazor in the north, with Sisera in command of his army. Now, Sisera sounds like a scary guy, although maybe in the end he's not as scary as he sounds. But the point is, Sisera has got 900 of those iron chariots, weapons of mass destruction, chariots that can ride over and crush anything else with optional blades and spikes on the wheels. And Sisera, we're told in verse 3, has had the upper hand for 20 years. 
So here's the cycle again. The Israelites come to their senses. They repent of their idolatry and they cry to the Lord for help. Now here's the thing. We're thinking this morning about the men of Israel and usually when Israel cries out to God, he raises up a strong man, a warrior judge, to lead them into battle. But notice at this point when they need help against Sisera and his iron chariots, the judge raised up by God is a middle-aged woman named Deborah, a prophetess. In fact, that is what the name Deborah literally means. If she was a Marvel superhero, her name would be Word Woman. Debar literally means word, word of God. And here she is sitting under the palm tree that's been named in her honour and and the people of Israel turn up to Deborah to judge their disputes, much like Judge Judy on TV. And verse 6, Deborah has a word from the Lord. And so she sends for Barak of Kedesh in Naphtali, a man from the north country. Naphtali, a place name I want you to remember. And Deborah says to Barak, the words you can see in verse 6, she says, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. And God says, I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands if you're not too busy. Judge Deborah says, get the men together and the Lord will do the rest. And Sisera and all his iron chariots will be yours. Now that does sound a little bit risky. Sisera's a scary guy. Except, of course, this is... Debarah speaking, the prophetess, she's speaking the word of the Lord. All you've got to do is trust it. So take a look at what Barak says. He says to Judge Deborah in verse 8, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. I'm staying here. Typical bloke. At which point Deborah says, okay, I'll come. But because you're not going to be a man, the honour won't be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Think Sisera's too tough for you? He's going to be beaten by a girl. So look, Barak rounds up the men of Zebulun and Naphtali, two place names I want you to remember. And verse 10 says that 10,000 men followed him And Deborah also went with him to hold his hand. The men of Zebulun and Naphtali. And they're on their way. Past Heber the Kenite's place in verse 11, which is where the whole story a little bit later is going to come to its climax. Meanwhile at the other camp, Sisera with his iron chariots has heard that Barak is out to get him. That Barak has gone to Mount Tabor. Now, I'm not much of a strategist, but I'm guessing a mountain is a pretty good place to take on a guy who's got 900 iron chariots. There is some wisdom in this. You know, chariots are pretty good on the flat, but not so good in the mountains. 
And all of that strategic wisdom, of course, comes from Deborah, who's got it from God. So verse 13, overconfident bully boy Sisera gets together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him, and they're ready for battle, or so they think, while the guys from Israel are on their mountain waiting for a word from Deborah. And at the right time, Deborah says to Barak, go. This is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Hasn't the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak and his 10,000 men go hurtling down the mountain and verse 15 says that Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. And Barak chases the chariots all the way home and Sisera's troops fall by the sword until not a man is left. Tough guys with their chariots not much good without them. Which brings us back to that tree that we came past on our way to the battle, the, the tent by the tree, the tent of Heber the Kenite and his wife Jael. Here's Sisera, verse 17, not so tough now, running scared. He, he peeks in the flap of the tent and Jael, she comes out to meet him, she invites him in, come on in, don't be afraid. She can see the fear in his eyes. She can hear it in his voice. So he comes into the tent and she puts a rug over him. Look, I I reckon there's some ancient Israelite humour going on here, isn't there? And I kind of wonder if Sisera is being painted as the original sissy boy. You know, talks big when he's got a gun in his hand. But now he's just like a little kid. Verse 19, can I have a drink of water? She gives him warm milk instead and tucks him up under a blanket safe. Or so he thinks. Now just remember for a moment the words of Deborah. The God of Israel has said, the tyrant who has terrorised your people is going to meet his end at the hand of a woman because the men of Israel won't be men. Now maybe you were thinking back then that was going to be Deborah the judge. But it's not. Which brings us to verse 20, which is played out with deliberate irony. I I love irony. I mean, don't you reckon it's ironic that the head office of Otis Elevators at West End is only two storeys high? Has no elevator. That's ironic. I think there's irony here. Sisera says, stand in the doorway of the tent, verse 20, and our English translation has actually missed a little bit of irony. He doesn't actually say if any one comes. He says, if any man comes by and asks you, is any man here? Say no. If anyone comes and asks, is there a man in the house? The answer is no. The truth is it's going to be no in every possible way you can think of because it's all going to be down to a woman And the man they come upon is an ex-man indeed. Because as soon as Sisera is asleep, and this is going to get gruesome, so block your ears, a jail picks up a tent peg and she grabs a hammer and she tiptoes to the place where he's snoring under the rug and she lifts the hammer and she whacks it and she drives the tent peg through his temple into the ground and so the great enemy of Israel is dead. And all it took was a girl with a tent peg and a glass of milk. Barak arrives. 
fresh from chasing the chariots. Jael goes out to meet him. Come on in, she says. I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he goes in with her and there's Sisera pinned to the ground dead, killed by the hand of a woman, but really by the hand of God, just as he had promised through the words of Deborah, the prophet. And verse 23 says, On that day God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. And the cycle is complete. It's interesting you see that in this case, in chapter 5, you get the same story all over again, but this time as a song. The song of Deborah. And it's a little bit like watching a Disney movie. You know, you get the action and then everyone sings. Not sure in this case what the tune is. But on that day, Deborah and Barak, they sing a victory song. It's a song that retells the story. But more than that, it makes some key value judgments about what's been going on. Some key value judgments, especially about the men of Israel and their willingness or otherwise to step up. So, hum along if you know the tune, I don't, but the words are in verse 2 of chapter 5. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Because just up to this point, the men of Israel have been sitting on their hands. Which meant that until Deborah came along, no one was safe in Israel. Because not a man could be bothered taking a stand for justice. Not a man had the courage because of the risks involved. Look at verses 6 and 7. In the days of Shemgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travellers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. See, it wasn't safe to go out at night. It wasn't even safe to go out in the daytime. It wasn't safe on the main roads because you'd be hijacked. So stay out of sight, stay out of trouble, take the back road. And not a man among them did anything about it. Israel lived in fear until Deborah came to be their mum. Verse 8. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Nobody lifted a hand. Not a man among them. Until now. And finally, even though Barak didn't really want to, but until now, they've finally got their act together. And so Deborah says, good on you guys. You've finally done something. She says, my heart is with Israel's princes, verse 9, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. At last, the people of Israel have got something to sing about some righteous warrior princes to be proud of, at last willing to step up, at last willing volunteers. And so now, verse 10, people are back on the roads and they're riding proudly on their white donkeys, sitting on their saddle blankets, singing songs of victory. Except, of course, you'll notice not everybody stepped up. And so the rest are on Deborah's list of shame. Verse 14, tribe of Reuben... 
Where were you guys? No show. There's wringing of hands, there's searching of hearts, there's lots of, oh, sorry, Deborah, we can't make it. We've got to look after our sheep. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. And Gilead and Dan and Asher as well, sorry, too busy looking after the ships. Too busy to to take a stand for the Lord God of Israel. The cowards of Israel didn't even join in while God fought and won the battle in a most unlikely way with these guys, the ones we saw in chapter 4. Here they are in the song, verse 18. Notice again the place names. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali in the terraced fields willingly put their lives on the line for the salvation of God's people. And so the song wraps up with woman Jael, verse 24, who, when the mighty Sisera comes, gives him curdled milk, tucks him up like a little boy and strikes him dead in a poetic way in the song. And just to confirm that Sisera really was just a mummy's boy, the final stanza, this sad little picture of the warrior's mum peering through the lattice window, saying, why is he so late home from work? Oh, it's because he's raping a few women and choosing some nice embroidered dress material to bring home for me. No, it's not. It's because he's dead with a stake through his head. And so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, says Deborah. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And so the land, says verse 31, has peace for 40 years. So what are we, New Covenant Christians, in what we at MPC called Episode 4 of the Bible's Big Story, what are we today meant to make of it all? Blokes, today, you might be a little bit relieved I'm not going to sledge you for being like the comfortable men of Israel. Not at this point anyway. If you're here this morning and you're the wife of a bloke like that, you might be a little bit disappointed. I'm not going to critique at this point the fact that you love being a hero when you're fighting fighting battles on your PlayStation, but not so much when it comes to hard conversations. Not so much when it comes to standing up for what's right. You'd rather run away. I'm not going to sledge the way. We'd rather be comfortable at all costs and play with our boats and our toys. I'm not going to criticise at this point the way we men want to be looked after and be served rather than to serve. What I am going to do at this point is direct all of us to Jesus. Remembering that in the gospel it is always God who fights and wins the battles for his people, often in the most unusual ways. It is God who loves to overturn the strong with the power of weakness. You know, there's actually a fascinating little thread as you follow through the big story of the Bible, a thread that keeps shining a light on those two little tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. I asked you to remember their names before. 
those guys who are most willing to sacrifice, most willing to risk their lives when everyone else pulls back. The prophet Isaiah, much later, says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Those northern tribes that Isaiah says eventually ended up in exile, one day God is going to honour Zebulun and Naphtali all over again because one day from Galilee, that's what that area is called in New Testament times as well, one day from Galilee is going to come a man of Israel who is willing to serve at great cost, at the risk of his own life, even more than any who came before, who is willing to pay the ultimate price and give up everything for the sake of God's people. And of course that is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Galilean, Jesus who willingly goes to the cross, nailed with a hammer and spikes to willingly die the death we deserved, taking on the power of sin and death. Looks so weak, looks so much like a loser and a victim. And yet in the end, stands up again undefeated. If you're here today or listening online and you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, you might need some help to decode what I've just said, the sort of stuff Andrew was talking about earlier. Because this is central. The way we are saved is through him fighting for us and looking like he's beaten. And we put our trust in that. It's kind of weird, but it is very, very good. Because we don't need to be the heroes. We don't have to do the saving. We just need to trust his word. Now just to lock that thought in, take a look on the screen at what Matthew says in his gospel. Because you might have said before, you know, Nazareth, well that's not in Galilee. If you really know your Bible maps. Matthew chapter 4, because he quotes exactly those words from Isaiah. And look at what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4, very deliberately. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of the death, shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's Jesus who stands up as the man on our behalf, willing to take God at his word, fighting our battle, dying our death, winning our salvation so we don't have to earn it ourselves. Which doesn't mean, by the way, in the end, it's okay to be uncommitted Christians. Especially, I reckon it doesn't mean it's okay to be half-hearted Christian men. I mean, the good thing is you don't have to be a tough guy or impressive. Just willing to take God at his word and step up and serve. So you will start to take the initiative as a Christian leader in your home in how you speak, what you model, what you insist on. Even 
taking on that weekly battle of getting the kids to church or on Zoom. On the Simpsons, I notice it's always Marge who wants to go to church and Homer who wants to stay home. How is it at your place? That if you're a younger bloke, you'll take the initiative in relationships instead of, like so many young men today, too scared to commit. And I reckon, you know, it is so often women who lead the way in faithfulness. Men tag along objecting, holding back. The men of Israel, will we, won't we? Lots of soul-searching, no action. Mice instead of men. While the women in this passage are great, aren't they? Deborah, Jael, not so much Sisera's mum waiting for him at home, but Deborah nudging the men of Israel to be what they should be. Courageous, strong, faithful. I, I love Christian women like that. I love being part of a church that's got lots of women like that. And yet, I reckon the thing most impressive godly Christian women want most is more godly Christian men. Uh, The opening page of one of Tom Clancy's books has a quote. It says this, the only two lines on the page. Heroes are often the most ordinary of men. That's all we need. Ordinary guys ready and willing to step up and take serving Jesus seriously, ready to take God at his word in every part of life, following the example as the, of the one man of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali who's given everything for us in our service, stepping up as men of God alongside women of God in sometimes costly and courageous service of God.